and uh, you'll find it there. Now, by way of uh, research, um, who here's ever heard a message out of the book of Nahum? Yeah, a couple hands only. Um, that's why we're going through uh, the minor prophets, because you don't hear um, their message often enough. This is a great book. I'm going to read the text, and we'll pray, and then let God speak to us. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging, and he's wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. Clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all its inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? And his wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, and he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, and he will pursue his enemies into the darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed and as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor, Thus says the Lord, though they are full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. And the Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Let's pray. Lord, even now in the hearing of these words, some of us are a little wide-eyed. We're like, whoa, it's not really a part of you we see, but it's you we want to see this morning, Jesus. It's you we want to adore. Help us to see you rightly so we can love you more completely. Holy Spirit, have your way in our hearts and in our minds. Might the words that come forth from this mouth be yours, not mine. And might the words, my brothers and sisters, here be yours, so in all things you'd be praised. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I read through this text over and over, I'm like, man, it's a part of God that not many people, A, think about, or B, even want to think about. Uh, but we're told about our great God in this text. And I thought about the way many people approach God, and many of you have in your car a spare tire. Some of you, anyways. If you don't, you should get one. One thing about a spare tire is we try to hide it. We forget it's there until we need it. Then all of a sudden, we're all about the spare tire. It may be deflated. We didn't know. It might be hidden under the car or somewhere in the trunk behind something. We might not even know how to get to it. We just know there's certain times we need it, but the rest of the time, we forget it. I tend to think we view God that way. 
is a spare tire. We kind of forget he's there, or maybe we kind of hide him away, but when we need him, we call upon him. We call upon him not as the God he really is, but as a God who will meet my needs and help me out of the pickle I'm in. Seems to be the only time we would give God any attention. But we want a God that conforms to our expectations and our individual needs. We want a God who will meet our demands and our tastes in this age. Nahum doesn't give us that option. It's a great book for a lot of reasons. And the reason we're studying it now is because Nahum's prophesying to Nineveh 150 years after Jonah. We just finished Jonah. So this is like now the rest of the story. Nahum. The prophet's name means comforter. Scholars propose a bunch of theories about Nahum's hometown. Probably Elkosh is our best bet and identifies the hometown as a city in southern Judah. The reason that's significant is this prophecy would be of great encouragement to the people of Judah who are under the thumb and under the threat of the Syrian Empire, which Nineveh was the capital of. And so Nahum comes along. We don't know much about him other than that, other than God used him to pen this book. It's a great book. You see, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they were converted, we read and learned through the preaching of Jonah. More than 100 years, probably more like 150 years before Nahum wrote. And these people, though, who came and repented did not transmit that knowledge to the next generation. And so about a generation later, Ninevites had reverted to their own brutish and bullish ways. God had come and said, that's enough, as we're going to see here. And so Nahum has a singular focus, and the focus is on the impending judgment of Nineveh. Again, he offers a continuation of the story of Jonah. And so let's see what he says about this God, this great God. Because he talks about the majesty of God. He talks about what I would call the trauma of majesty. We often approach God in sense of joy and thanksgiving, and rightfully so, but trauma? Well, think about what the word trauma means. It's an emotional response to a seemingly terrible event or natural disaster. It's usually associated by shock or denial. And when we come fronted with who God really is, His majesty, there's an emotional response and, and one that's either shock like, oh my gosh, this is a great God, or denial. So really, there's only one of two choices. That shock is meant to lead to worship. The denial, unfortunately, which is too often today, leads to a distorted picture of God. But Nahum goes through some majestic attributes. And when we ascribe majesty to somebody, which is, uh, Jay read that prayer of David in First Chronicles, we acknowledge greatness in his person and his position. We show respect. You see, majesty points to the greatness of God as He is. It's always a declaration of His greatness. It's always an invitation to worship. Now it seems as you read through the prophets, all the prophets seem very impressed. It seemed like one certain aspect of God, Isaiah, he was really impressed and it was impressed upon his heart about the holiness of God. Jeremiah came along and his prophecy he was embraced the justice of God, the judgment of God. Ezekiel comes along as we read Ezekiel. You can't help but miss, he's really impressed with the glory of God. Then we read Nahum. 
that's impressed with the majesty, the wrath of God, this holy wrath. In chapter 1, he uses words to describe God's attributes. And they help us shape a clearer picture of God's character, especially his wrath. Now, we need to remember some things here. God is changeless in his person, in his purpose, in his character, because there's so many who read the Old Testament and say, well, God used to be like that. He's no longer like that. God's changeless. He's perfect in his person. He's not a God of the Old Testament all of a sudden hit a switch. Now he's a different God in the New Testament. That's not the God of the Bible. He's changeless. And the total impression Nahum creates is that of a very passionate God who's moved to intense anger. Not agitated, not out of control, but a righteous, holy, just anger. And he attributes several attributes and characteristics to God. It's a very careful, I call it a careful description, it's a very reverent description of who God really is. So what does this text reveal to us? We're told, first of all, in verse 2, he's a jealous God. Now we know jealousy is a vice. So how should we approach divine jealousy? The first thing we need to realize is divine jealousy is a zeal to protect the love relationship. It's a zeal to protect the love relationship. God's jealousy over his people presupposes a covenant. A covenant made in love by grace. And we read all the way back in Exodus 20, verse 3. We're familiar with this text of the Ten Commandments. But within it are these words. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. Then God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol of any likeness or what is in heaven or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So there we get this idea of God being jealous. It's not a shallow affection. He's not accidental. It's not aimless in that sense. It's but an expression of a sovereign purpose in his love. Now note in back in Nahum, verse 2, we see wherever you see capital letters of Lord, it's, it's God's name, Yahweh. And the listeners would know God, Yahweh is God's covenant name. It's God's, you could say, special name for his people. That they were in a covenant relationship with him. And God was jealous for that relationship. God knew other gods would let them down. God knew that no matter what idol they presented and looked to, that they'd fail him. And God was zealous that that wouldn't happen. God was zealous for his glory and jealous for this covenant relationship. And it's in light of this overall plan of his jealousy must be understood. You see, God wants no rival devotion in your life. He knows every other rival devotion will let you down. It will fail you, no matter which one it is. And so God is jealous for this love relationship. He wants to be our primary passion, not a spare tire. He has a deep, fiercely protective commitment to his people. God's jealousy is praiseworthy. It's a zeal to preserve something precious, and that being a relationship with him. So Nahum describes our God as a jealous God. He also describes him as an avenging God. Now, some of you are into the Avenger movies. Huh? I know my kids are, especially one of them. And, and you got these guys. They got the Hulk. You got Iron Man in there. 
You got Captain America. I mean, you got quite a lineup of people, and they're there to make, right, they make wrongs right. They're there to protect earth from all those who would threaten it. They're Avengers. We kind of like them because they're going to take out the bad guys. So we're watching these movies going, take them out. Just take them out, Iron Man. Captain America, throw that shield. Take them out. Because we want the bad guys out. But you know what? When we think of God as an Avenger, don't we tend to balk? Like, whoa, wait a minute, that's okay for these superheroes, but I'm not sure I want a God who avenges. That just seems wrong. But does it? I mean, think about it for a minute. Understanding God's avenging, avenging nature is to understand it's judicial in nature. In other words, it's not subjective response, but it's an objective response. He expresses judgment. He's a just God. We might balk at this, but the fact of the matter is that we don't want guilty people let off. We see something in the paper of a murderer or somebody who did something horrific, we're like, they need justice, right? We want justice. But how come when it comes to God, we're like, well, maybe not. But he's an avenging God. It's, he's judicial in nature. And he must avenge that which is evil. He's a just judge. And he punishes unrepentant evildoers. If you look at the end of verse 2, see, he reverses wrath for who? His enemies. He avenges. He judges his enemies. The outworking of his jealousy to eradicate every obstacle to its commitment. And because of his fierce commitment to his own glory, to his own children, he is an avenging God. A God of ju- judicial you could say judicial, I don't say execution necessarily, but judicial in the sense he carries it out. He's a just God. He's an avenging God. You could say he's the ultimate avenger. We're also told in verse 3, it's interesting you read these and kind of the placement of them is quite unique. We read that God is a jealous God. He's an avenging God. And as we cringe, we read he's slow to anger. Now, if anyone understood that it was the Ninevites, God was slow to anger. Matter of fact, it was 150 years ago that he allowed them, in a sense, to repent. He gave them an opportunity. He was slow to anger. And now as Nahum speaks this prophecy to Ninevites, they certainly couldn't accuse of God of flying off the handle. He was slow to anger, and he still is. The Lord's anger is marked by patience. But it's not to be seen as passive or weakness. Lest we think it's weakness, we need to read the rest of the verse. He's great in power. (laughs) So if you're thinking God's patient because he's weak, oh no, keep reading the verse. He's great in power, but he is slow to anger. Thank God for that. And it's interesting, Nahum says he's slow to anger in a sense, you need to worship him for this, but that was what Jonah was complaining about. He says, I know you're slow to anger, God. He complained about it. Nahum says we should be praising him for it. Because he is slow to anger. Should we be tempted to think he's weak? He goes on to explain he's not. So you and I need to understand and praise God he's slow to anger. I think this would be an empty room if he wasn't. There'd be nobody speaking and there'd probably be nobody listening. It'd be empty. But we can praise God he's slow to anger. As I mentioned before, he's great in power. It's evidenced dramatically, verse 4 and 5. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Try that sometime, by the way. 
He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. And you're like, what the stink is all that about? Who's Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon? What do they have to do with my life? It's a good question. Bashan was known for its lush pastures. Amos 4.1 tells us. I mean, the best pastures you could imagine. Farmers would drool looking at these pastures. Carmel was known for something a little bit different. It was known for its vineyards. Winemakers would drool looking at these vineyards. These vineyards, Amos tells us again, well-renowned vineyards. Very fruitful. Very productive. Lebanon was known for its great trees. Beautiful cedars. As a matter of fact, you read about the cedars of Lebanon. David talked about. And so these were lush and productive and fruitful produce. And they were known for these things. And God says, as great as they are, I can make them wither. He's talking about his power. Man couldn't take credit and say, well, I made these pastures lush. God says, I can take care of that in a hurry. Because I'm great in power. He produced earthquakes, landslides, and other evidences of his great power. And the Assyrian army, all of nature, Nahum's telling us, dwarfs in comparison to the presence and power of God. He's majestic in his power. Verse 6, we see another word, we're kind of surprised. Who can stand before his indignation? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken up by him. When you see the word indignation... The first thing we need to think is, is the word intense. God's intense. You ever meet someone who's intense? You're like, whoa. You know, you kind of got to adjust your personality a little bit to try to line up with their intensity. That's the word. He's an intense God. He burns with intensity. But it's, de- it's depicting an anger that's under control, that's a pure anger. You can't take the anger of God and separate it from the rest of his attributes, which we tend to do. His anger is a pure anger. It's a holy anger. It's a just anger. And it's an anger about sin. So next time you're thinking in terms of God is ho-hum about your sin, pick up Nahum and step back and say, okay, maybe not so ho-hum. Unfortunately, the watered down of Christianity today has brought that, that mindset that God isn't too concerned about our sin. He's a God of grace. He forgives. And whether we do something, it doesn't really matter. What well, does matter. God has always been grieved by sin. And Nahum certainly points that out. Poured out like fire, those words add even more intensity to the words that describe God's wrath. But just when we're taken back, we're like, oh my goodness, there's no hope for me. The text says, verse 7, the Lord is good. It's like almost seems contrast, doesn't it? You got the God is filled with indignation. His, his wrath fire is like fire burning out. He's good. We're like, which one is he? Right? I mean, we tend to think of those as opposite. But they're not. Majesty talks about the perfection of his character in all things. He's majestic in all of his characteristics, and there's a perfect harmony and a perfection of each of them. He's good. His power, his indignation is perfectly tempered with his goodness. He's very much aware of those who trust in him, we're told. And this is overlooked, but another reason God was to destroy Nineveh was his goodness to his people. He wanted to protect them. 
God is good in his very being. He's good. His very nature is to be good. God is good independently. No one needs to help him. God is good eternally and unchangeably. God is good in all his ways. He's good in all his plans. He's good in all his purposes. God is so good to the very core of who he is, he can't let evil go unchecked. That's good. And our God is good. Romans 11.22 points to the goodness and the severity of God. That he's both. They're not in opposition to one another. They're not in conflict with one another. He is good and he is severe. And he's intense. And this is a description of his wrath. God cuts people off from his goodness and kindness because he's judicial in nature. Justice must be carried out. We need to see God's goodness perfectly balanced by his severity and wrath. And Nahum then talks about God's majestic wrath. He tends to zoom in, verses 9 through 14, on this idea of wrath. And I think one of the many reasons God has left this in here is that you and I need to understand his wrath rightly. In our sinfulness, we tend to get carried away with all kinds of ideas about what it is. You see, every word describing God's wrath occurs here in chapter 1. Indignation, anger. If you go through the Old Testament, all those words describe wrath, that's right here. I mean, Nahum covers it all. And God's passion precedes his action. When we talk about the wrath of God, the anger of God, the Bible does not mean God has emotional outbursts. We get ticked off. We have bad days, and we blow up. God doesn't blow up. He's not out of control. If I had to define God's wrath, I'd define it like this. It's his natural and necessary reaction to anything and everything that opposes his holiness. I'll say it again, this isn't scripture, <laughs> but this is a working definition. God's wrath is his natural and necessary reaction to anything and everything that opposes his holiness. You see, there's a sense of trauma in regard to who God is. And when we come and realize how great this God is that he won't be trifled with, that's only when we begin to create a healthy fear of God. You see, we deal with a holy God who demands to be taken seriously and who stands distinct, far above all reference point necessarily we have. Clearly, his wrath denotes intense and passionate feeling, like jealousy that man must face when they reject God. Why is this all really important? You see, to deny God's wrath is to deny the reality of judgment. When we deny His wrath and we deny the reality of judgment, you guess what else we deny? The necessity of atonement. We deny God's wrath and we deny that there's judgment. We don't see the purpose of the cross, rightly. A great author years ago who I loved said this, we never see sin rightly until we see it's against a holy God. And only then will we see it rightly. I think Nahum's trying to get to that. You and I can't mess with this. His wrath is never out of control. He directs his passion and action discriminately, not carelessly. It's an important revelation of God's wrath because the reverse of what characterizes people so often. We have a distorted picture of it all. People are controlled by their anger. God controls his anger, if I could put it that way. And in this case, his wrath and his, his prophecy is against a particular people, the Ninevites, who are at one time objects of mercy, and God finally said, that's enough. 
There's a point in there where God says, I've given you every opportunity, and that's enough. He carries out his justice, his perfect justice. No, at this point, the Ninevites were about to incur wrath. It's not long after this, all of Nineveh would be gone as God executed his wrath. There's aspects of God's wrath. We'd be right in saying it's a righteous wrath. God is so right, he can't let wrong go unpunished. His wrath is not cruel. His wrath is always just. How could God be good if he looked the other way when faced with evil? How could a policeman be good if he looked the other way when a crime was taking place? We would say that's a horrible policeman. He'd be fired. The media certainly would have a field day with that. What about a fireman who drove by, saw a fire truck, saw a fire, and kept driving? We would say that's not a good fireman. Matter of fact, that's a heartless fireman. But when we get to God, he's good. He's so good, he can't let evil go unpunished. You see, we understand goodness not only to be positive acts, but also to be resistance to wrong. But God's goodness contains not only positive things he does, but also a negative reaction to evil. When we talk about God's wrath and his goodness, Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God's been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now notice where it's revealed against. All unrighteousness, all ungodliness. So when you think God's wrath, you better think ungodly and unrighteous. Because he's just. And it must punish evil. We're told in Romans 2.5 that there are those who uh, rejected God and who rebelled against him and it said they stored up wrath. In other words, they stored up for a day that they'll be judged. And God will come, they'll come before God and God says, look, look at this storage house you got. All the evil things you've done and how you rebelled against me and continued to rebel against me. You see, God displays his wrath, his justice in eternity. You see, we see God's wrath executing his justice in history. We look around and we can see elements of it. We can see God starting to judge people and nations. But that's not the full execution of his justice. Psalm 12.7 has an interesting thought. The psalmist writes, He has bent his bow, in speaking about God's judgment, and he's made it ready. To me, that's pretty picturesque. The psalmist pictures the wrath of God like a bow being drawn back. And the more people live in sin and unrepentant condition, the more they rebel, God pulls the bow back. And God's saying when he lets his arrow go, it's going to penetrate the unrighteous in great agony. And here, in Nahum, the Ninevites. So don't get envious of the wicked. They'll face judgment. It's easy to look around and think people are getting off now and how come these people are getting away with this and they're doing this, but don't envy them because a day's coming. You see, there's a place for those who store up God's wrath. There's a place for those under His wrath. It's called hell, and it's real. And hell's present for one of many reasons probably is because God is just. He couldn't compromise His justice. And there's a place called hell, and it's real. That's why John the Baptist cried out when he ministered on this earth, flee from the wrath to come. Run. You don't want to face this. I'm convinced the worst part of hell might be the eternal torment of knowing they rejected the grace of God. It might be a day 
You remember where you sat in church and a pastor said hell is a real place. That Jesus paid the price for your sin and the penalty of your sin. That you could spend eternity with God and when you heard it, you just brushed it off. That might be the worst part of hell is knowing you rejected the grace of God. But you didn't do anything when you heard it. You didn't take seriously the wrath of God. God's wrath against sin arises by necessity out of his nature. I think the one reason that God has been rejected by so many in America is because they don't like the God of Nahum 1. They prefer to rip Nahum out. It's not a God I want. That's That's not the kind of God I want to worship. Not understanding who he really is. I was reading on Facebook of a, a young lady who used to be in a youth group years ago, and, and uh, she posted something along the lines of basically, how can I believe in a God who allows these things to happen? And she kind of went on and on and kind of spewed out her thought processes on it, and when all came down to it, it was pretty clear. God wasn't the God she wanted him to be. He was God. He is God as he is. He doesn't apologize. He says, this is who I am. I'm majestic. And yes, I'm a God of wrath. Yes, I'm an avenging God, but I'm also a jealous God, and I'm good. And those things are perfectly married together. That's why he deserves all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. Why is it important to, cult- to contemplate God's majesty, his wrath? Well, one, to cultivate hearts broken by God's hatred of sin. A.W. Pink, a commentator once said this, Our hearts may be duly impressed by God's detestation of sin. We are ever prone to regard sin lightly, to gloss over its hideousness, to make excuses for it. But the more we study and ponder God's abhorrence of sin and His frightful vengeance upon it, the more likely we are to realize its hideousness. You see, when we contemplate God's majesty, specifically His wrath, It's so our hearts would be cultivated that they'd be broken by God's hatred of sin. Because indeed we are prone to regard sin lightly. Brokenness leads to repentance. Brokenness leads to surrender. And when we're broken, that's when hearts will come to the cross. And our hearts get broken when we realize how much God hates the sin in our life. There's another reason We need to contemplate God's majesty and wrath. That is to foster a true fear of God. We cannot serve Him effectively or witness unless there's a reverence for His majesty. I think when there's a true fear of God, there'll be an impacting witness for God. We realize and worship Him as He really is. The godly fear of His power, a godly fear of His presence and His position. We reverence Him not as a spare tire but as a true God. And unfortunately, as helpful sometimes as earthly relationships are, sometimes they they don't help. When my children think of their father, um, they chuckle, I'm sure, at times. And and when they think about dad, they probably don't fear me very much. They especially don't fear me in regard to my person. They know I love them and care for them, and sometimes I overlook their stuff. Sometimes I don't. But they don't really fear me as a person. But what about my position as father? Well, probably don't even that. That's why they throw dirty socks at me or stuff like that. Okay? They're not here fearing dad. I don't walk in and they all bow down and say, oh, dad's here. That doesn't happen. 
Quite the opposite. Like, hey, how you doing, Dad? They walk the other way. And so sometimes when we think of fearing God, unfortunately we get unhealthy images like the way we approach our dads. But God's not a daddy in that sense. He is to be feared and reverenced. Reverence for his position and reverence for his person. And the term for fear can describe everything from dread or being terrified to standing awe or having reverence. And I think that's what it means for the believer, to be in awe and to be in reverence of who God is. And when used of the Lord, it applies to both aspects of the term. It's a shrinking back, if I may, of recognition of the difference or holiness of God. But the interesting thing about it, the ironic thing, is we draw back in fear and reverence, but then we draw near in worship. And there's that balance. And as we sing songs of worship up here, we need to sing in terms of reverence and awe of our God, for He's a consuming fire. But there's also the invitation from that God to draw near. It's beautiful. Our God is beautiful in that way. And it seems that we only understand the invitation to draw near is when we just draw back in fear and reverence, is that we truly understand the blessing of being able to draw near. And so the fear of the Lord then is an absolute, absolutely necessary if we ever to begin on the right foot in learning and living or worshiping. Which is really the third reason we need to contemplate His majesty and His wrath. That's to draw out fervent praise. Praise to Christ. You see, God's telling you this morning, I'm a wrathful God. But I've done something myself to satisfy my wrath. Because I love you. And there's nothing you could do that would satisfy my wrath. So God sent His Son to this earth. And you wonder why the cross is such a big deal. The Son of Man, the Son of God became the Son of Man, and except without sin, so you and I could be saved. Jesus faced God's wrath on your behalf. His payment of His love satisfied the justice and the wrath of God. There's a big word the Bible uses it's called propitiation. It means to satisfy the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Romans 5.8-9 I want to read this because this is rich. For you who are in Christ... These are, these are shouting words. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. In other words, there's more to come. We shall be saved from the wrath of God. How? Through Him. The reason Jesus is the only way to heaven is He's the only one who satisfied the wrath of God. He's the only one who could satisfy the wrath of God by becoming the perfect sacrifice for you and me. You can be saved from the wrath of God through Christ because between you and the thunderclouds of divine wrath stands the cross of Christ. And only those who come to the cross can be saved. Those who seek to bypass it, those who seek to reject it, will one day face the wrath of God. The Bible is very clear on that. Only those who come to the cross can be saved. I've heard this week of a couple people who've attended here who've placed their faith in Christ. They've come to a place where they're saved. Justified. But I fear some of you this morning are here and aren't. And I just need to tell you the truth. 
Outside of a relationship with Christ, you're lost. And you will face the wrath of God. But the Bible says there's such good news. Christ has come to save you. If you'll trust in Him and His work on Calvary, on your behalf, the Bible says you can be saved. The Bible also says we need to call upon the Lord to be saved. In other words, a decision you make. It's an act of your will. It's volitional. Mommy and Daddy can't do it for you. No matter how many Bible classes you've taken, you need to make a decision that only you can make to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And so if you've trusted in Jesus and His work on the cross, praise Him. Praise Him that He satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. But if you have not, today He offers the gift of Himself. I want to give you an opportunity. If you've never trusted Christ right now, today's your day. Today is the day that you can find salvation and hope for all of eternity. And I want to lead you in that prayer right now. Let's pray. Lord, there's sometimes reality just brings us up short. This is one of those moments. If you this morning sit here and you know I'm and you know that you've never trusted Christ and maybe for the first time you realize what's at stake. Maybe for the first time you realize why it was so significant that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead. Maybe you knew about that, maybe you considered it lightly before but maybe never personalized it. Maybe never thought in terms of I need Jesus. Right now, you can call upon the name of the Lord to save you. You can do it in what the Bible calls prayer, which is just talking to God. If that's you this morning, and you know in your heart you want to trust Christ, you want to call upon Him, I want to invite you to do that through this prayer. This prayer isn't any magical formula. But if this is the expression of your heart, make this your will. Make these your words. Dear Jesus, I confess that you are great. I confess that you are good. I confess that you are majestic. And I confess you're perfect. And I confess I'm not. I confess I'm sinful and recognize that my sin has separated me from you. But I've heard the good news this morning that you not only can save me, but you want to save me. So I now call upon you, Jesus. Please forgive me. And please save me. I come to the cross, and I now claim your death, your shed blood, is the only payment that would satisfy your wrath. I trust you, Jesus. And Lord, for those this morning who have trusted you as Savior, it may have been many years ago, it may have been yesterday, I pray that you'd instill in us a greater vision of your majesty, a greater sense of awe within us, a greater sense of reverence. We praise you as you really are. So God, please do that work in our heart. My heart and the heart of my brothers and sisters here. 
For it's in your name, Jesus, your precious name that we pray. Amen.